0: fascinating thing about doing research in security, in information security very broadly defined, is that over the past 30 years it's been a rapidly and steadily expanding field. We started off 30 years ago with only a couple of areas that we understood reasonably well, the mathematics around cryptography uh, and how you go about protecting um, operating systems by by means of access controls and, um, and policy models. And the rest of it was um, a vast, fog of um, wishful thinking, snake oil and bad engineering and there were only a few application areas that people really worried about 30 years ago, diplomatic and military communications at one end and the security of things like cash machines at the other. But as we've gone about putting computers and communications into just about everything you know that you can buy for more than 10 bucks and that you don't immediately eat or drink, so the field has grown because Um, In addition to cash machines, people try and fiddle taxi meters, tachographs, electricity meters, all sorts of devices around us. This has been growing over the past 20 years, uh, and it brings all sorts of fascinating problems along with it. In addition to that, um, as we have joined everything up together, so we find that security is no longer something that you can do by fiat. Back in the old days, 30 years ago for example, uh, today I was working for Barclays Bank looking after the security of things like cash machines. And if we had a problem then you could resolve it by going to Lois Common Manager. And so in a bureaucratic way things could be sorted by policy. But by the late 1990s this wasn't the case anymore because all of a sudden you would everything been joined up through the world wide web, through other internet protocols. And suddenly, the level of security that you got in a system was a function of the self-interested behavior of thousands or even millions of individuals. And um, this is something that I find truly fascinating. And we've got artifacts to study, such as, for example, um, the world um, payment system, where you have got billions of cards in issue, you have got millions of merchants, you have got tens of thousands of banks, you've got a whole bunch of different protocols. And you've got a lot of selfish, greedy people um, who, even if they aren't downright criminal, are trying to maximize their own welfare at the, the benefit of everybody else. And realizing this in the late 90s made us realize that we had to get economics on board as well. And so, um, one of the phase changes, if you like, in what we did was when we started embracing social science, not because um, it was a trendy thing to do to get grants to do multidisciplinary stuff but because it was absolutely necessary it became clear that to build decent systems you had to understand the game theory um, as well as just the theory of the cryptographic and al- algorithms and protocols that you used. and um, that came out of a collaboration with Hal Varian at Berkeley who's now the chief economist at Google and in fact across the the tech industry you see an understanding of network economics is now seen as a prerequisite for business. And in fact, we now teach it to our undergraduates as well because if they're going to have any idea about whether their startups got any chance whatsoever or whether the firm that they're thinking of joining might be around in five years' time, then it's useful to know these things. But in addition to that, it's really, really important from the point of view of figuring out how you protect stuff uh, because um, although um, a security failure may be due to someone using the wrong type of access control mechanism or a weak cipher or whatever, the underlying reason for that is very often one of incentives. Fundamentally, the problem is that when Alice guards a system and when Bob pays the cost of failure, then things break. Now, put in those terms, it's simple and straightforward. But when we start looking at how things actually fail in real life, it's often very much more complicated. In the payment system, for example, you've got banks that issue cards to customers, issuing banks, And you've got acquiring banks, uh, banks that buy in transactions from merchants and which give them merchant terminals. And if a bank gives a merchant cheaper terminals to save on money, there may be more fraud, but that fraud falls on the card issuing banks. And so you can end up with some um, quite unsatisfactory outcomes um, where basically there's not much option but for a government to step in and regulate. Otherwise, you end up getting levels of fraud that are way higher than, uh, than, um, than would be economically ideal. The next thing that's happened is that over the past 10 years or so we've begun to realize that as systems began to become tougher and more difficult to penetrate technically, so the bad guys have been turning to the users. Now, um, the people who use systems tend to have relatively little say in them because they are a dispersed interest And in the case of modern systems funded by advertising, they're not even the customer, they're the product. And so when you look at systems like Facebook, all the hints and nudges that the website gives you are towards sharing your data so it can be sold to the advertisers. They're all towards making you feel that you're in a much safer and warmer and less dangerous place than you actually are. And under the circumstances, it's entirely um, understandable Um, that people um, end up sharing information in ways that they later regret and which end up being exploited and over time people learn and you end up with a tussle between Facebook and its users whereby Facebook changes the privacy settings every few years to opt everybody back into advertising and people protest and they opt out again and this doesn't seem to have any stable equilibrium. Meanwhile in society at large what we have seen over the past 15 years Um, is that crime has gone online. In the UK this has been particularly controversial because back in 2005 um, the then Labour government um, struck a deal with the banks and the police to the effect that fraud would be reported to the banks first and to the police only afterwards. And they did this quite cynically in order to massage down the fraud figures and the banks went along with it because they ended up getting control of the fraud investigations that were done. Uh, and the police were happy to have uh, less work for the desk officers to do. And for a decade, um, chief constables and government ministers were claiming that crime is falling, we're doing a great job. Some dissident criminologists started to say, hang on a minute, crime isn't actually falling, it's just going online like everything else. And last year, a year and a half ago, the government started publishing honest statistics for the first time in a decade and found to their disquiet um, that online and electronic crime is now several times the the rate of the traditional variety. In fact, this year in Britain we expect that about one million households will suffer a traditional property crime, uh, like burglary or car theft, and somewhere between three and four million, and probably nearer four million, will suffer some kind of fraud or scam or, or abuse, almost all of which are now online or electronic. And so, from the point of view of the police forces, we've got, poli- we've got policy wrong. The typical police force, our Cambridge Shark Constabulary, for example, has got one guy spending most of his time on cybercrime, that's it, right? And so, when we um, find that there's an accommodation scam going on in Cambridge uh, targeting new students, for example, Um, It's difficult to get anything done because the scammers are overseas that has to be referred to a police unit in London And it's got other things to do uh, and nothing joins up and as a result We end up with in effect no enforcement being done on cybercrime Except the few headline crimes that really annoy ministers So we've got a big broken area of policy that's tied to technology and that is at the same time um, tied to old uh, management structures that just don't work now In a a circumstance like this, there are two options for someone uh, like me, a mathematician who became a computer scientist and an engineer. You can either retreat into a technical ghetto, and you can say, right, we will concentrate on developing better tools for X, Y, and Z, or you can engage with the broader policy debate and start saying, hey, guys, let's go out and collect the evidence, uh, show what's being done wrong, and figure out ways of fixing it. And so over the years, I found myself changing from a mathematician into a hardware engineer into an economist into a psychologist and, and, and now becoming somebody involved with criminology and uh, with policy and law enforcement. And um, uh, that is something that I um, find really refreshing because before I became an academic, um, my first dozen years of my working life, I would go and change jobs every year or three just so that I kept moving on and didn't get bored. But since I've become an academic, I've in effect. Have been doing a different job uh, every two or three years as the subject itself has changed and um, the things that we're we're worried about, the the kind of systems that are being hacked, have themselves also changed. And there's no sign of this letting up anytime soon. So um, how did I end up becoming um, an advocate, a spokesman? Well um, first of all there's a cultural background in that Cambridge has been a haven for dissidents and heretics for many centuries um, you know we're proud to have people around um, like Newton and Einstein and so on uh, sorry uh, what Einstein wasn't one of ours let me re- let me let me restart that <coughs> um, uh, how did I end up uh, becoming involved in advocacy well firstly there's a the cultural background in that Cambridge has long been a haven for dissidents and heretics You know, the the Puritans came out of Cambridge um, after um, Erasmus translated the Bible and laid the egg that Luther hatched. Uh, Then there was Newton. More recently there have been people like uh, James Clerk Maxwell, of course, and Charles Darwin. So, you know, we are proud of our ability to shake things up, to, you know, destroy whole scientific disciplines, to destroy whole religions and replace them with something that's better. In my particular case, Um, The the spur was the crypto wars of the 1990s. Um, Shortly after he he got elected in uh, 1993, uh, Bill Clinton was pitched by the National Security Agency with the idea of key escrow, that America should um, use its legislative and other might to see to it that all the cryptographic keys in the world were available to the NSA and its fellow agencies so that um, everything encrypted could be spied on. And um, this um, drew absolute outrage from researchers in cryptography and security and also from the whole tech industry because at the time, people were starting to gear up for what became the dot-com boom. We were starting to get more and more people coming online. And if you don't have cryptography to protect people's privacy and to protect their financial transactions, then how can you build the platform of trust on which the world in which we now live ends up being built? And so a whole bunch of us who were doing research in cryptography got engaged in uh, giving talks and lobbying the government and pointing out that proposals to seize all our cryptographic keys would have very bad effects on business. Um, we had, um, uh, this works its, it's, it's way out in, in different ways in different countries. Um, here in Britain, um, we had tussles with the new Blair government, which started off being against key escrow but was then rapidly persuaded by Al Gore to get on board the American bandwagon. We had to push back on that and got eventually what's now the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. In the process I was involved in starting an NGO, the Foundation for Information Policy Research, and later on when it became clear that this was a European scale thing as well, um, European digital rights, which was set up in 2002 or 2003. And Europe's contribution to ending the crypto wars uh, came in the late 1990s when the European Commission um, passed the electronic signature directive which said that you could have got a, a presumption of validity for electronic signatures provided that the signing key wasn't known to a third party. So if you shared your key with the NSA or with GCHQ, as these agencies wanted, um, then that was tough. You wouldn't get this uh, special Um, legal seal of approval for the transactions that you made, whether it was to buy your lunch or to sell your house. And that was one of the things uh, that ended the first crypto war. Following on from that um, there were other issues came along, issues concerning copyright, issues concerning privacy, um, issues concerning data protection. and I got particularly involved in issues around medical records and whether they can be kept confidential um, in an age where Everything becomes electronic, where records eventually migrate to cloud services and where you also have pervasive genomics. And this is something in which I've worked off and on for 20 years. And in my case, um, working with real problems, with real customers, and in the case of medicine, I was advising the BMA on safety and privacy for a while. Um, This puts things in perspective in a way that is sometimes hard if you're just looking at the maths in front of a blackboard. Because it became clear looking at medical privacy that it's not just the encryption of the content that matters, it's also the metadata, who spoke to whom, when. Um, Obviously, if someone is uh, exchanging encrypted emails with a psychiatrist or with an HIV doctor or uh, with a physiotherapist, then that says something about them, even if those emails themselves cannot be read. And so we started looking at the bigger picture. We started um, looking at things like anonymity we started looking at things like whether things could be plausibly denied. Um, And that, of course, is something that people in many walks of life actually want. They want to give advice without it being relied on by third parties. And so out of these political collisions and related engineering assignments, uh, we began to get a much richer and more nuanced view of what information security is actually about. And that was hugely valuable. So becoming involved um, in activism, Um, was something that paid off big time. Um, Even although uh, people like my dad will say, no, don't do that, you'll make enemies, Um, it it turned out in the end to have been not just the right thing to do, uh, but also the right thing from the point of view of doing the research. Um, Computing is different from physics, and physics uh, is about studying the world, because it's there. Uh, computer science is about studying artefacts of technology, things that have been made by the computer industry and the software industry. And So if you work in computing, um, it's not prudent to ignore the industry or to pretend that it do- doesn't exist. And there's a long Cambridge tradition of working with leading firms. So, so the late Sir Maurice Wilkes who started the lab after the war, consulted for Lyons and then eventually for IBM, Uh, My own thesis advisor, Roger Needham, set up Microsoft Research in Europe after he retired. And for my part, I've worked for um, companies as diverse as IBM and Google, and I've consulted for the likes of Microsoft and Intel and Samsung and National Panasonic. And this is good stuff because it keeps you up to date with what people's real concerns are. It gets you involved in making real products, and as an engineer, I feel... Um, you know, a glow of pride when I see my stuff out there in the street being used. For example, six years ago I took some sabbatical time and um, worked at Google, of which uh, the bulk of my effort went into what's now Android Pay. That's the mechanism whereby you can pay um, using your um, Android phone to to get a ride on the tube or to uh, buy a coffee in a coffee bar. And 25 years ago in fact um, I, I worked on a project um, where we were um, designing a specification for prepayment electricity meters and that may be the thing I've done that's had the most impact because there are now over 400 million meters worldwide using the specification. And um, we enabled, for example, Nelson Mandela to make good on his election promise to electrify 2 million homes in South Africa after he got elected in 1994. More recently, when I went to Nairobi a few months ago, I found that they're just installing meters of our type. And now that they're all out of patent, the Chinese manufacturers are stamping these out at ridiculously low prices and everybody's using them. Now that's an example of how cryptographic technology can be a real enabler for development. Because if you've got people who don't even have addresses, let alone credit ratings, how do you sell them energy? Well, that's easy. You design a meter which will dispense electricity when you type in a 20-digit magic number. And the cryptography that makes that work is what I worked on. And you can get your 20-digit magic number if you're in downtown Johannesburg by going up to a cash machine and getting it printed out on a slip and your account debited. If you're in rural Kenya, you use mobile money and you get your 20-digit number on your mobile phone. So it, it, it really is a flexible and transportable technology, which is an example of the good that you can do with cryptographic mechanisms. If computer science is about anything at its core, it's about complexity. Um, It's relatively straightforward to write short programs that do simple things, but when you start writing big long complex programs that do um, dozens of things for hundreds of people, then the things that you're trying to do start interacting and the people that you're serving start interacting and the whole thing becomes less predictable, um, less manageable, and more troublesome. Even when you start developing software projects that involve more than say half a dozen people for a month or so, then the complexity of interaction between the engineers who are building the thing starts becoming a limiting factor. Now we've made enormous strides in the past 40 years in learning how to cope with complexity of various kinds at various levels. Um, But there's kind of a feedback loop happening here. You see 40 years ago, it was the case that perhaps 30% of all big software projects failed. And what we considered a big software project then would nowadays be considered, you know, a term project for half a dozen students. Um, But we're still having about 30% of big projects failing. It's just that we build much bigger, better disasters now because we have got much more sophisticated uh, management tools. Um, The limiting factor here isn't the number of thousands of lines of code with better tools you can cope with bigger programs. It's that uh, the limiting factor is social. Um, Now, if you're running a business, um, then it's your job to make profit for the shareholders and profit is the reward for risk, so it's your job to take risks. And so if a third of your projects fail, that's okay. Um, Where it starts to get interesting is when you observe in in public sector procurement um, that only 30% of large projects uh, succeed and yet ministers and civil servants try to be risk-averse and behave in all sorts of strange ways in order to pass the buck and avoid liability. So why do you get this kind of perverse outcome? And so when explaining complexity, you can't explain it purely in terms of process, purely in terms of not using the right development methodology. You also have to understand how people interact in organisations and how these interact with the kind of things that you're doing in projects. when we're doing that kind of thing, we're not hugely different from the kind of project management that you might see in a shipyard or on a very large construction site. And in fact, we do end up having interesting conversations uh, with people whose job it is to sort out big messes in big construction projects. We find that we've got lots to talk about. Um, But, you know, IT brings its own complexities, its own complexities in terms of um, you know, network effects and technical lock-in and so on, which make it particularly difficult to manage big projects financially. Um, you remember back in 1983, the big question um, was, do you develop software for the IBM PC first, or for the Mac first, or, or for both? And for a while, those of us who are writing software would develop for, for both, or for one or the other. But by the end of 1983, it was becoming clear that IBM was pulling ahead because Shell, BP, Barclays Bank, um, the civil service, were all starting to buy IBM rather than Mac. And so everybody started writing their software for the IBM PC first, and for the Mac second, if at all. So the IBM PC took off, and in fact, Microsoft grabbed all that money because they were smarter than IBM, and they realized that what was actually locking people in wasn't the fact that the hardware was made by IBM, but the fact that the operating system was made by Microsoft and IBM had thought that they would block this uh, by offering three different operating systems, but of course one of these became predominant. The market tipped and Microsoft ended up running off with all the cream. Uh, This is an example of network effects and we now understand that they're absolutely pervasive in the IT industry Um, and it's why we have so many monopolies. Markets tip because of technical reasons, because of two-sided markets, and also for social reasons. For example, um, about 10 years ago, um, I had a couple of new research students coming to me, and I said, well, what do you want to study? And they said, you won't believe this, Ross, but we want to study Facebook privacy. And I said, you what? And they said, well, maybe an old married guy like you might not understand this, but here in Cambridge, all the party invitations now come through Facebook, So if you're not on Facebook, you go to no parties, you meet no girls, you have no sex, you have no kids, and your genes die out. It's as simple as that. So you have to be on Facebook. But we seem to have no privacy, and can that be fixed? So they went away and studied it for a few months and came to the conclusion that, no, it couldn't be fixed, but they still had to be on Facebook anyway. So that's the power of network effects. And one of the things that we've realized over the past 15 years is that a very large number of the security failures that afflict us occur because of network effects. Back in the early 1990s, for example, if you visited the Microsoft campus in Redmond and you pointed out that something people were working on had a, had a flaw or it could be done better, they'd say, nah, um, we're going to ship it Tuesday and get it right by version 3. And that's what everybody said, ship it Tuesday, get it right by version 3. It was the philosophy. and. IBM and the other established companies were really down on this, They're saying these guys at Microsoft are just a bunch of hackers. They don't know how to write proper software. But Bill had understood that in a, in a world where markets tip because of network effects, it's absolutely all important to be first. And that's why Microsoft software is so insecure, why everything that prevails in the marketplace starts off by being insecure, because people race to get that market position. And in the process, they made it really, really easy for people to write software for their platform. They didn't let boring things like access controls or proper cryptography or whatever get in the way. And then once you have the dominant position, you then put the security on later, but you do it in a way that serves your corporate interests rather than the interests of your customers or your users. You, you, you do it in such a way that you lock in your customer base that you lock in your user base. And once we understood that, that was a big aha moment for me back in um, about 2000 or 2001. It became immediately obvious that understanding network economics in detail was absolutely central to doing even a halfways good job of security engineering in the modern world. Okay. The, um, people talk about malicious AI, and there are science fiction stories about what happens if the robots take over. Um, In fact, Martin Rees thinks it would be a good idea if the robots take over because then they could fly to the stars, an enterprise for which we don't live long enough. Um, I'm a little bit more of an engineer than that, and my concern is that right now you have people whose abilities, whose consciousness and whose perception is enormously enhanced by the use of tools. I began to realize this in 1996 when I first played with AltaVista, the first proper search engine and I was in the process of helping some lobbying of the government on privacy, we wanted to investigate some companies who appeared to be misbehaving, and at the end of an afternoon when I'd figured out how to drive Vista and had found out everything about these companies, about their accounts, their directors, their directors' hobbies and interests and so on, I just realised that with a search engine I now had at my fingertips the same kind of power that the last year, only the prime minister had, with all the security and intelligence agencies, to um, to rush and and uh, do his bidding. Now, since then, we've seen more of the same, and um, people who are able to live digitally enhanced lives, in the sense that they can use all the available tools to their fullest extent, are very much more productive and capable and powerful than those who are still stuck in meat space. And. Um, it's as if you had a forest where all the animals could see only in black and white. And so- suddenly along comes a-, a mutation in one of the predators in that it can see in colour. And all of a sudden it gets to eat all the other animals, at least those who can't see in colour. And the other animals have got no idea what's going on. They have no idea why their camouflage doesn't work anymore have no idea where the new threat is coming from. That's the kind of change that happens once people get access to really powerful online services. Now, so long as it was just the case that everybody who could be bothered to learn had access to AltaVista or Google or Facebook or whatever, then that was okay. The problem we're facing now is that more and more of the really capable systems are no longer open to all. They're open to the government, they're open to a big business, they're open to powerful advertising networks, right? Twenty years ago, I could go and find out everything about you that was in the World Wide Web and you could do the same to me, so there was mutuality. Now, if you're prepared to pay the money and buy into the advertising networks, you can buy all sorts of stuff about my clickstream and find out where I've been staying and what I've been spending my money on and so on and so forth. And if you're within the tent of the intelligence agencies, as Snowden taught us, then there is very, very much more still. There's my location history, there's my browsing history, there's just about everything. Now, this is the threat. And you know I believe this was a threat before Mr. Trump got elected president. And I think that now that Mr. Trump has been elected president, it must be clear to all that having government, uh, having very intrusive uh, powers of surveillance um, is not something that necessarily sits, sits well with a, a healthy, democratic, sustainable society. One of the things that we're thinking about hard now is the Internet of Things. Now, a lot of people think that the security problems of the Internet of Things are just privacy and there are plenty of those problems. Um, We've seen, for example, a doll being banned in Germany uh, because it's basically an open mic in your kid's bedroom and it's against privacy law. But the real transformative change, I believe, with the Internet of Things will be safety. Uh, Security will be ever more about safety. Now, last year we did a big project for the European Commission trying to work out what happens to safety regulation in this new world. And um, Europe regulates lots of stuff just like DC does. They've got agencies regulating vehicles, cars, trains, planes, medical devices, all sorts of things. Electricity meters um, that are guys who worry about the safety. How does this change once everything's online? Well, in the old days Car safety was about getting a, a maker to make a few prototypes, put the crash test dummies in them, bang them against the wall, film the results, analyze them, inspect the software in the engine management unit and the ABS, tick all the boxes, and the car goes into production. So it's pre-market test and inspection, and it's got about a 10-year cycle. What's starting now is that you're getting um, Software updates in one car after another. Tesla is updating regularly, for example. Ford is starting to update over the year. Toyota says they will by 2019. Within a few years, every car will be updating its software, perhaps once a month. Now, this is both good and bad. It's good because it means that if there's a safety flaw, you can fix it in the entire car fleet without having to spend billions of dollars recalling them all to the garage. But it's going to be an enormous challenge to the safety regulators because they're going to have to work at 100 times the speed, right, On a time constant of one month rather than a time constant of 10 years. It's going to bring in enormous complexity in software update because the safety of a car isn't just one central computer. A car might have 100 different CPUs in it, and many of the critical subsystems aren't made by the, the brand whose badge is on the front of the car. They're not made by Mr. Mercedes, for example, but by Mr. Bosch or Mr. ZF or whoever. And so how do you go about um, managing all that? How do you do the testing? How do you do the integration? How do you see to it that the upgrades get shipped? It's already hard enough to get upgrades to your mobile phone um, if if it's a device that's no longer actively being sold. So we've got all these problems. Now, why does this matter? Because if you get a safety flaw in a traditional car, say, for example, the A-Class Mark, which would roll if you braked and swerved too hard to avoid an elk. Um, They fixed that. They, They shipped a service pack. They changed the steering geometry. Nobody died, so that's okay. But if you get a flaw that can be exploited remotely over the Internet, if you can reach out and put malware in 10 million different Jeeps, then that's serious stuff. Now this, this happened first, for the first time in public a couple of years ago when a couple of guys drove a Jeep Cherokee off the road and the industry um, started to sit up and pay attention. That can be used as a diplomatic weapon. You want sanctions on Zimbabwe? Just stop all the black Mercedes motor cars that Mr. Mugabe hands out to his henchmen as payment we raised that with the German government. What would your reaction to an American demand to do that be? Well, it was absolute outrage. So diplomacy comes in here. Conflict also comes in because if I'm, um, let's say, the Chinese and I'm involved in a standoff with um, the American government over some islands in the South China Sea, it's nice if I've got things I can threaten to do short of a nuclear exchange. And if I can threaten to cause millions of cars in America to turn right and accelerate sharply into the nearest building causing the biggest gridlock you've ever seen in every American city simultaneously maybe only killing a few hundred or a few thousand people but totally bringing traffic to a standstill in all America's cities isn't that an interesting um, weapon worth developing if you're the Chinese Armed Forces R&D Lab and there's no doubt that such weapons can be developed so all of a sudden, you start having all sorts of implications. If you've got a vulnerability that can be exploited remotely, it can be exploited at scale. And we've seen this being done by criminals. We've seen 200,000 CCTV cameras being taken over remotely by the Mirai botnet in order to bring down Facebook for a few hours. Right? And that's one guy doing it you know, to impress his, his girlfriend or uh, boyfriend or whatever. Can you imagine what you can do if a nation state puts its back into it? So all of a sudden, safety becomes front and center and that in turn changes the policy debate because at present the debate about access to keys that we've had with you know Jim Comey's uh, grumblings in the USA and with our own investigatory powers bill here in Britain has been about whether the FBI or the British security service should be able to tap your iPhone for example by putting malware on it And people might say, well, you know, there's no real harm if the FBI goes and gets a warrant and taps John Gotti's phone, I'm not going to lose lose any sleep over that. But if the FBI can crash your car, do you still want to give the FBI a golden backdoor key to all the computers in the world? And even if it's kept by the NSA, then the next Snowden maybe doesn't sell the golden key to the Guardian. Maybe he sells it to the uh, Russian FSB. So we suddenly get into a very, very different policy terrain where the debates over who gets access to whom and when and how and why um, are suddenly sharp because it's not just your privacy that's in the line anymore, it's your life. Well, the internet, like many other human artefacts, brings more uh, blessings than curses, otherwise we wouldn't um, uh, keep it going, we'd turn it off. Um, And like many things, it's three steps forward and one step back. The industry is rather bad at recognizing the backward steps, and it tends to hope that other people will clean up its messes, as previous industries have done in the past. And there are very interesting parallels with the history, for example, of the railways, and the history of the canals before that, where eventually you needed regulation eventually you needed regulation saying that the railways had to carry all freight at the same rate and you couldn't discriminate and do sweetheart deals to companies that your brother-in-law owned because, you know, the early railway barons did that and it was totally exploitative and they managed to extract a whole lot of the value from the the areas that they served. Similarly, um, you you have to have um, the regulatory arms of government awakened on the job and seen to it that they defend things like net neutrality. Um, something that appears to have come under threat. Um, you know, now with the, n- the new U.S. administration, do we actually want to go back even more to a gilded age where a small number of robber barons managed to extract all the surplus from everybody else? You know, great if you're building vast houses in Newport or selling very fancy yachts, but ultimately uh, that brings social costs, ultimately it brings pushback, and ultimately you have your FDR or whoever the new um, the revolutionary president is, has to push back on it big time. Uh, it's, not, it's not the elected officials that create the inequality, it's the nature of the business itself. Right. You see, to, to build railways you have to have an act of parliament giving eminent domain to the railway company over a strip of land, otherwise you know, the Duke of Roxburgh holds you up to ransom for you know, all the value of a railway line between Scotland and England because he owns a strip of land, right? So you, you have to have eminent domain, but once you've got eminent domain um, you've got a natural monopoly, mm-hmm. and if that can then uh, charge every customer at his marginal willingness to pay, then it can extract all the value, and then some. The, uh, the big project that we have at the moment, the Cambridge Cybercrime Centre, has as its mission making cybercrime research a science. Uh, because up until now, basically no research was repeatable because somebody who was doing a PhD, for example, would go out and collect some data. He might spend a year or two persuading a company that he was sufficiently trustworthy to get access to some of their logs. And he would then write some programs, he'd analyze the logs, he'd write up his PhD thesis, and then he'd go off to work for Facebook. Um, And the data would no longer be available to to anybody. And so it wasn't possible, if you looked at his paper and thought, well, I could have done that analysis better, to get your hands on the data or an equivalent equivalent data so that you could run your own analysis on it. So what we've done is to raise the money and the support from various corporates um, to have a center that will run for five years with half a dozen people and that will collect a whole lot of data from different sources, from takedown companies, from big service companies, from uh, registrars, from all sorts of places. And we'll make this available to academics who are prepared to license its use. Now much of the data is slightly dirty. None of it's really sensitive personal data. We, 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 we don't touch things like credit card numbers or anything like that. But much of it's got things like IP addresses that do raise some concerns under the privacy regimes of some countries. So everybody has to sign an NDA. But we've got standard incoming and outbound license agreements so that companies can, who are comfortable to do this can let us have the data. Um, on the understanding that the only people who will access it will be bona fide academics who have signed an appropriate license agreement and NDA. And this means that for the first time uh, we've got a curated trove of data which will enable people to do research um, on the same kind of basis as people inside Google or Facebook or the NSA who are working on cybercrime. So um, this kind of research will be repeatable, it will be scalable. Um, and it will be open to many, many different research teams to start competing with each other. And in 2020, when um, we go and pitch for our next helping of funding, uh, we'll judge its success not by how many papers we've written about frauds and scams and abuse online, but by how many papers other people have written. And it's the creation of this kind of shared resource which we believe has held up research um, on the subject for the past decade. What we've learned over the past few years is that all of the world's conflicts are acquiring an online element. This is happening with crime um, where instead of burglarizing your house someone may steal from your bank account remotely and many people may think this is an improvement. You're you're not at personal risk and with any luck the bank will make you good. Um, Similarly, um, conflicts that have a diplomatic or military edge are moving online. We've seen the use of online um, attacks and propaganda in conflicts in uh, Georgia and, um, and elsewhere. We've seen the NSA and the Israelis attacking Iranian centrifuges using malware, um, which appears to have led to a reasonable outcome in terms of the um, Iran peace deal and was certainly less destructive than sending in the warplanes to bomb the tanks. Um, So is the use of cyber conflict instead of armed conflicts using planes and tanks and drones an improvement? Well um, we're going to have to wait and see. There is the risk that the threshold for starting a cyber conflict will be lower. People will think that they can get away with it, that attribution is hard. Um, They often make mistakes on that. Um, The UK government made a very serious mistake when they thought that they could break into Belgium in order to wiretap the European Commission uh, because Snowden blew the whistle in what they were doing and that has seriously annoyed people in the European Commission just at a time when um, Britain doesn't really need that. So there are hazards involved in, 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 in lowering the threshold for conflict. As far as electoral conflict is concerned we have seen the progressive adoption of social um, media techniques and messaging uh, not just in national elections in America and Britain, going right back as, as far as Obama's first election. We've seen it in, in referenda. We saw it in the Scottish referendum in 2014 uh, where pro-nationalist supporters were um, hounding and abusing people who were in favour of remaining in the UK because they were more militant and you know more people were active online. We've seen the same kind of thing in the um, uh, Brexit referendum in the UK. We've certainly seen... Um, in the USA uh, the way that techniques were used effectively, more effectively by uh, Mr Trump than they were by Mrs Clinton. What that's going to teach everybody is that if you're in the business of politics you have to get good at this stuff and you have to get good fast, otherwise you're out of a job. So there's going to be a lot of very rapid and aggressive development of techniques of intrusive surveillance, of psychological profiling of voters of micro-targeting of political messages. And what the consequences will be of that, we don't know. We already know that there's a tendency for people to uh, clump into you know, a red universe and a blue universe where you hear only those messages from people who are congenial to you because Mr. Facebook and Mr. Google will direct messages to you that will keep you on their site for longer so that you'll click on more ads. And therefore we have less of a, a polis, we have less of a political space where we can all interact and where we discuss with peop- things with people with whom we don't necessarily agree all the time. What happens when that goes micro-targeted? Um, if you've got somebody who's interested in gun control and gets messages only on gun control or somebody's opposed to gu- uh, gun control or um, somebody is in favour of um, increasing the retirement age or in favor of uh, decreasing the retirement age or whatever and then uh, they get that message obsessively all the time um, uh, you know, at the cost of any broader political debate in society. Um, is this perhaps what's happening with fake news? Now who's to say? We've always had fake news in a sense for so long as we've had tabloid newspapers which has been a century. There have been newspaper editors who, who played Uh, who played the man, not the ball. Is this going to become the new normal? And if so, what happens to democracy? These are the sort of problems that we're going to be wrestling with, I think, for uh, the next decade.